absolutely make no mistake about it don't back down it is absolutely true there are solutions there is a solution and don't let anyone tell you otherwise sometimes people want to give up and they say all is lost what are we going to do there is a solution and i don't want us to lose sight of that i like solutions i like them a lot i've noticed i've heard other people say you may have noticed you may have heard other people say as well there's problems everywhere where are the solutions well there are a lot of problems and guess what it doesn't take a genius to find a problem i think you and i could find a long list of problems without working very hard there are problems everywhere but i want to reinforce there is a solution i like solutions i like solutions for all kinds of problems i needed my lawnmower blades sharpened this week i didn't know where to take them it had been a while since i had done that lawnmower shops sometimes seem in this area to come and go i looked around and i found one not too far from where i live i called them yes they could do that so i was there early this morning and had them sharpen my lawnmower blades i was glad i found a solution there are solutions to our problems and this shop i told them they were they were a little busy this time of year if you know anything about florida you know that it rains every day so we have plenty of rain and the weather is warm so our grass grows 24 7. so this is the busy season and it wears on people and they're having the same stresses of a busy season any other business would during their busy season and it's even worse because they can't get parts for their stuff so they have to wait days when it used to be an overnight delivery but I left them saying, well, I really am glad to make your acquaintance. I'm glad to know your shop is here because I'm glad that when I have a problem, I can find a solution to my lawnmower problem because you'll be here. You see, we all look for solutions. We all want to know we have a solution. I was glad that shop now is a solution if I have a problem. I told them, I hope I don't have a problem, but I sure am glad you're here if I do. Well, all kinds of problems exist. But I want us to remind ourselves today that there is a solution. Well, welcome to the program. My name is Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Most people call me Pastor Rick. And I'm glad to share a little time with you today as we have been doing week by week. And I want us to, to think about the theme of the program. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've got to get our confidence properly placed so that we can have faith that the Bible talks about. Now, I know there's a lot of ramifications to faith. And some people say, well, that def definition doesn't cover enough. I understand that. But, you know, as, a, as an application to live our lives, faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because if we have that kind of confidence in his trustworthiness, we'll follow his directions. So thanks for joining us. Thanks also to my church for their part in making this possible. I'm really grateful for their encouragement, grateful for your willingness to spend time here. We do this for your benefit, not for ours. So we really do hope that it helps you. 
So, well, we've introduced the idea. We've agreed that there is a solution and we'll get to the solution a little later in the program today. But I want to start out by introducing you to an idea you may not have heard about. And at first you might say, whoa, that sounds pretty complicated or involved or or uh, academic. Uh, don't don't worry about all that. You'll understand. I'm, I have every confidence. But there has been a concern for a number of years in in Christian circles about the way people see the world. Uh, it goes by the common description of worldview, and people will say, "Do you have a Christian worldview?" And a lot of people wonder, "Well, what does that really mean?" Well, the people that study this, they have some concrete things that describe a decidedly Christian worldview. It's not my point to go into that today, but I want to introduce the idea of worldview and introduce you to a very dominant worldview that's present in our country today and that needs a solution. Now, worldview in the simplest way, and and this really helps me, so uh, some people might say, well, you're simplistic so be it. I, I just I have to find simple, concrete ways to, to get my arms around some of these things. So when I think about worldview, I think of a worldview as, as a lens through which people see the world around them. They have a lens that they look at the world around them, and it filters the information. It informs the information. It helps them make sense or sometimes nonsense of the information. And then it helps them make decisions that are consistent with the way they view the world. We all view the world in certain ways. None of us has a perfect view of the world, but it's a lens through which we view the world. So so you can think of it this way. If you have a pair of sunglasses, they have a certain color lens. Some sunglasses are really dark, so they don't let much light in. We need that kind of sunglass in Florida because it is really bright and sunny most days. Very unusual this time of the year for us to have a cloudy day. Might cloud up for a little while when it rains, but most of the time it's really bright. So we want a dark lens. Now, some people, they like a lighter lens because of fashion or whatever. So you've sometimes seen lighter blue lenses or yellow lenses, and, and those affect the way we see the world. Whatever sunglasses lens we use affects the way we see the world. In the same way, a worldview affects the way we see the world. And the way we see the world is very significant for the opinions we have, for the decisions we make, for the lives we lead. So worldview is a lens, and we want to talk about this particular worldview and what it means to us and and help us sort out a better understanding of that, but also help us understand the solution to this, because this is, this is this worldview. This is the shifting sand that the Bible talks about. This is not a solid rock worldview. So let's talk about that a little bit. This is research that has been ongoing for a while. And the people that do this have been doing worldview research for many years. This particular report that I'm referring to comes from the Arizona Christian University Cultural Research Center. 
you may not be familiar with Arizona Christian University. It's located in Glendale, Arizona, which is in the metropolitan Phoenix area. And at this university, Arizona Christian University, they have a cultural research center. Now, the director of that cultural research center is a man named George Barna. Some of you may recognize the name George Barna. He's been doing research, particularly to help the church for a long time. And now he runs this center there at Arizona Christian University. And he's been doing worldview research for a long time, and he's now doing it there in, in their context. And so we're going to have insights from this research. It's been ongoing for a number of years, and it tells us what worldview Americans are most likely to draw from to understand the world around them. And the worldview that he's describing here, or philosophy of life, sometimes people will call it, is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Sometimes you might see it listed as MTD, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, before your brain cramps and you say, oh, dear, I don't know what this is all about. Where is he going with this? Let me encourage you. Never, ever, never, ever, ever be intimidated by words. We all have words that we don't know. You, me, everybody. But don't be intimidated by that. Words are just new friends to get acquainted with. And you can understand these concepts. It is not that difficult. I don't think it's difficult at all. But we need to understand that people who do research, they tend to label things in rather specific ways and sometimes with what we might consider technical language. That's what's going on here with moralistic, therapeutic deism. And we'll explain what that means and you'll understand better the concept. And sometimes these concepts, they'll use words like this in order to, to lump several ideas together in one word that that when you unpack it makes sense. But we don't use these kind of words in everyday language. Very rarely would we use moralistic in our weekly day in and day in day out lives. But don't be intimidated. We're going to take a look at this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. And the research indicates from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University that adults in the United States are more likely to lean on the beliefs and behaviors drawn from moralistic therapeutic deism than those adopted from any other worldview examined. They discovered that nearly four out of 10, 38%, draw heavily or moderately from the smorgasbord of beliefs represented by moralistic therapeutic deism. So we want to take a look at what does that mean? What is moralistic therapeutic deism? And, and why is it a concern for the people that are doing this worldview research? And of course, we're going to get to it. Never fear, we're going to get to the solution. So moralistic therapeutic deism was a worldview identified and named by a couple of sociologists who did research back in 2005, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton did this research. They studied the spiritual lives of American teenagers. And in their book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, they unpacked this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. And they identified several core beliefs of the perspective 
of the philosophy of the worldview, if you will. And, and the, there were six specific things that they talked about. And this will help make some sense of the concept or of the, I should say, the name moralistic therapeutic deism. So the first component, the first idea that they identified back in 2005 is belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. Belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. Well, that's the concept of deism. There's a God, but he's really not involved with us. He's out there somewhere, wherever that somewhere is. Second, people are supposed to be good to each other. Well, we don't have any problem agreeing with that. That's what they believed. That's what they thought, these teenagers in 2005. And that's a moral component to that. So the first idea of a distant God, that's where they kind of come up with this idea of deism. And when you're supposed to be good to each other, there's a moral component to that because it says there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. So you begin to understand this moralistic, therapeutic deism and the connection of that. The third idea that they surfaced, the universal purpose of life of being happy and feeling good about oneself. So one of the key components of MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, is this idea that you're supposed to be happy and feel good about yourself. That's the therapeutic side of things. So there's the first three concepts, and you can begin to make the connection to why they call it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic because there is some concept that we should be good to each other. Therapeutic because it should be all about feeling good about ourselves. So let's um, don't worry, be happy. If you remember way back when Bobby McFerrin made that song popular, don't worry, be happy. That's kind of the therapeutic thought behind moralistic therapeutic deism and the recognition or uh, it could be more than recognition. It could be kind of disappointment that there's a God, but he's out there someplace distant from us. So there's the three first three components. There are some others, but you begin to get the idea of, of where they get the term. Number four on their list of components, there are no absolute moral truths. Relativism, what some people will immediately think about, and I understand that, sure. It's a little bit more than that, because when you think about no absolute moral truths, that means there is no measuring system outside of ourselves. There is no, can we say, law outside of ourselves. There are no guidelines. There's no measuring stick outside of ourselves. So since there is no measuring stick, then moral truths are simply what we choose to make them. And so they did make one of those. I mentioned that earlier, the idea that we should be good to each other. So there's four ideas. Belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. People are supposed to be good to each other. And the universal purpose of life of being happy and feeling good about oneself. And number four, there are no absolute moral truths. The fifth idea that Christian Smith and Melinda Denton identified was God allows good people into heaven. Now, again, there's a moralistic component. You have to be good. Now, I'm not sure they identified what good means, and that's the relativistic idea of things, because it, there's a sense of good, but there's a God that's distant, so we don't really know what good is. It becomes our idea of what good is. And then the last concept that 
Smith and Denton identified was that God places very limited demands on people. So in other words, God, who is out there somewhere, doesn't really expect anything much of any of us. So that's a kind of a beginning in idea into moralistic therapeutic deism. And Barna did some other work on this and, and identified some other things in this research that comes from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And over the last 25 years or so, he's been working on this. He demonstrated that once a worldview is, is developed and, and adopted, becomes the decision-making foundation of our lives, it tends to go on through our lifetime. If we don't consciously make an effort to retrain our thinking, it stays that way. So when they identified back in 2005 that these teenagers took these six ideas, and that's what they believed in their religious and spiritual lives, well, we see that being lived out in that same group of teenagers now these many years later, and it's the generation that we call millennials. They've held on to those beliefs, and we can see it in the way they live their lives. So it has real-life application. This is not, as some people want to dismiss it, this is not academic gobbledygook. This is an identification, a description of reality for too many people in our world. And so we need to take a look at that and say, okay, what's the solution? Well, we're going to get to what's the solution. It does matter. So here... Barna reminds us from this research that, that these people are called Christians, they would call themselves Christians, but many of them have beliefs that conflict with biblical teaching. He, he writes this, although three out of four people, 74%, who lean substantially on MTD for life guidance consider themselves to be Christians, numerous beliefs held by moralistic therapeutic DM deism reliant adults conflict with biblical teaching for instance among those whose lives are most heavily influenced by mtd moralistic therapeutic deism and then he goes on to list he lists several ideas now listen to these i want to go through some of these maybe all of them and and those of you who understand what god has said in the bible will begin to understand that the reason for concern for the people who adopt components of moralistic therapeutic deism. So Barna lists a number of places where they, they have made or adopted beliefs that conflict with the Bible and what the Bible teaches. For example, 95% do not consider success in life to be described as consistent obedience to God. So for them, success is not following God and accomplishing what he calls us to do, or finding and, and fulfilling his purposes for our lives, his will for our lives. It's something else. They don't consider that success. 92% do not believe that the wealth they have has been given to them by God to manage for his purposes. Think about that. People think the, the wealth they have is just theirs for their purposes, for whatever they want to do. It just belongs to them somehow. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Seems like to me God created everything, and he's made it possible for us to have what we have. And we should remember that we're just stewards of that. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm going down a different track there, aren't I? Uh, the number three thing that he mentions, 
91%. Now notice that I've listed 95%, 92%, now 91%. This is very significant, very high percentages. 91% do not believe that people are born into sin and need to be saved by Jesus Christ. 91%. Stunning. 88% say they get their primary moral guidance from various sources other than the Bible. So they don't even look to the Bible for an understanding of right and wrong. 87% do not believe that the ultimate purpose of human life is to know, love, and serve God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. 87%. 76% contend that good people earn a place in heaven through their good behavior. Notice the moralistic component of that. I'm sure you're beginning to see these things when it refers to good people and good behavior. It's a moralistic idea. It's not an idea that deals decisively with sin and our behavior and our brokenness and our separation from God. It's a, it's a well, everybody's good and they need to do good, and, and that's how they earn their place in heaven. You'll sometimes hear people say, well, when I get to heaven, I hope I balance the scale with, with more good things and with bad things. That's not what the Bible teaches, but that seems to be what many people want to, want to believe these days. 75% do not believe that God is the basis of all truth. Well, there's the, the crux of things, isn't it? If you don't believe God is the basis of truth, then you don't have any place to stand. That's important. 74% believe in karma. 73% say that having some type of religious faith is more important than which faith is embraced. So just have some kind of religious faith. It doesn't matter which one. Just have one, and it's okay. That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. And the last thing that he lists here, 71% do not believe that the Bible is the true and reliable communication from God. 71%. Now, these are stunningly large percentages that people have, have adopted that do not stand up to scrutiny and clearly convict, conflict with biblical teaching. So we need to really uh, take this idea seriously. We have a problem. And if people are believing these things, then, then we have a really big problem. And we need to help people sort through that and 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 we need to help find a solution. And oh, by the way, there is a solution. We're going to talk about that. So Barna, as is true with most research, the researchers will, will write up some paragraphs and, and help us understand the implications of the research. And so George Barna did that in this report. And, and here's one of the things that he wrote. Young adults have grown up with a culturally adulterated version of the Christian faith. They have adopted a softer, twisted version of genuine Christianity. The good news is practitioners of MTD are not anti-religion or anti-Christianity. They just are not willing to surrender themselves to authentic Christianity's demands or to believe that a real faith would even make such demands of them. Now, that, that's a stunning statement. They, they, they just can't imagine giving themselves to the demands of authentic Christian faith. They can't even imagine that authentic Christian faith might have expectations of them. 
I guess for them that they expect God to, to uh, what I sometimes say, dance to their tune. Well, that's kind of a, a, an unflattering description of how people should relate to God, but certainly that conflicts with what the Bible says. But that's the, that's the state of things that, that Barna has discovered. Now, the good news in, in that paragraph, of course, you heard that, is that they aren't anti-religion or anti-Christianity. So that's hopeful. That's, that's indicating that they might be willing to consider. And, and you know, one of the ways that I think we can help each other with that, and I sometimes say this, and you've heard me say this if you've listened to the program, is that we need to stretch toward God's high calling, not shrink from it. And it sounds like that the people caught up with MTD are are shrinking from it more than stretching toward God's high calling. Well, a few more thoughts from Barnum. He continues in his writing in a summary of the research. Those who adopt moralistic therapeutic deism believe in innate human goodness and kindness. They view God as a powerful but dispassionate observer who remains detached from human experience unless circumstances make him the solution of last resort. They believe that life is about individual happiness and that action producing positive personal outcomes gives meaning and purpose to life. Well, he said a lot in that paragraph too, and I don't think we're going to go through all of it, but, but he says that people believe in innate human goodness and kindness. Now, I don't assume ill of people. You probably don't either, but the Bible clearly tells us that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all messed up big time. We all have a need for God to help us get on the right track and to change us from the inside out. That's the whole point of the concept of salvation. But the people that adopt MTD take the perspective that, that people are good and kind, and that is a trap. And there's a solution to that too. So uh, he goes on, MTD, Barter says, is more about believing in and promoting the best interests of self based on currently popular cultural thinking. Its proponents are not likely to prioritize knowing, loving, and serving a transcendent God. Hmm. The idea is to, to whatever the popular culture says is good for you, that that's what you need to, to focus on. You don't focus on on the transcendence of God, or knowing what God wants you to do or has created you to do. You don't focus on loving God and, and serving Him and your neighbor. It's all about us. It's the, um, it's the countercultural idea. You'll sometimes hear church pastors say when they invite people to serve, we need to be, we need to be people willing to serve in a serve me world. And, that, and that's exactly what this is describing a serve me world. We want people to do things for us, but we're so reluctant to think we should be expected to do things for someone else, to actually serve God, to actually work at church. I've been amazed, and it hasn't happened for a long time because I've talked about it so much. I've been amazed how, how people sometimes will say, well, they can't come early or stay late for church to help out with anything. I mean, how could we expect that? Well, that's just a simple illustration of this whole idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. Well, 
as I said earlier, there is a solution and we definitely want to get to that solution because the solution matters. And we can wring our hands about problems and we could talk about moralistic therapeutic deism a lot longer than any of us really want to. But we need to think about what is the solution that God has provided? What is it that that we need to remind each other about? What is it that we need to challenge people to do? What should they stretch toward? Where should their focus be? And you know what? One of the things that really got my attention from this is that it seems we live in an age where people don't have anything to stand for. And when they have no real conviction, they end up falling for anything. And that seems to be what's going on around us. And we need to encourage each other and find a way to develop strength in our lives and conviction that this is what we believe. This is what we stand on. This is the life I'm determined to live because this is the life I understand is right and good and holy. And we're watching a whole generation of people try to build their lives on shifting sand. I mentioned that earlier. And you remember the parable of Jesus, the, the man that built his house on the rock, that house stood, but the one who built it on the sand, that house collapsed. And unless we can help each other, unless we can help our, our friends, the generations that come behind us, develop that place to stand, they're going to have lives that are going to be dominated by shifting sand. And it's not going to end well for them. In fact, even trying to live life with any kind of sense of satisfaction, they're going to be caught up in this idea of just being happy. And that is a trap and an empty way to live. So I want you to take a little break with me, get your cup of tea, your cup of coffee, walk around the room a little bit and prepare yourself for solution. We have a solution to the problem. We need to remind ourselves and focus on that solution. I'm Pastor Rick, and I'll be right back. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. 
fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cells REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. think enough of all of that worrisome stuff about do people believe what they need to believe and moralistic therapeutic deism let's talk solution what do you say i'm ready to do that let's get right to it i'm pastor rick stevens and we are going to talk about the solution to the what they don't call it this but i would call it the malaise of our day because it seems to me people don't have any firm foundation for their lives. They have no place to stand. It's as though they have their feet firmly planted in midair. And that's why people flounder and struggle. And that's the challenge for us these days is to, is to come in and remind people that there is a solution to their struggles in life. There is a solution for how they can found their life on something solid. There is a solution. And we want to talk about that solution today from the Gospel of Mark. Now, I really like the Gospel of Mark. I had a really excellent teacher and an excellent class on the Gospel of Mark many years ago. David Smith was that teacher, and I have been forever grateful for the influence of that class on my life and my understanding of the Bible. Sometimes people think the Gospel of Mark is a second-rate gospel. I don't think that at all. It has just really been helpful for me. And so I want to take a look at at the pivotal story in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is not long, but it's packed with information, it's packed with action, and in fact, if people want to know the story of the Gospel, the story of Jesus, I tell them to read the Gospel of Mark. It's not very long, it tells an awful lot about what Jesus did and taught, and you can gain a lot of perspective just by reading the Gospel of Mark, and it doesn't take long because it's not very long. So if you ever have a friend who needs some some uh, encouragement, point them to the Gospel of Mark. I think they'll benefit a lot. So, okay, the Gospel of Mark is roughly divided in half at chapter 8, and there's a very pivotal event that takes place in chapter 8. That's the event we're going to look at today. Prior to this event, Jesus had been introducing himself to the people. After this event, he began turning his life and his ministry toward the events of Holy Week, what we often refer to as his passion, his death, burial, and resurrection. This is a pivotal point in Jesus' life with his followers. You'll pick up on why I call it the solution when we read this story. And I'm going to read some of the verses from chapter 8, starting with 
verse 27. I'm reading from the New International Version because that's what so many people use these days. And, and I think it's a helpful version. I think you'll benefit from that. There are others. And if we need to talk about that again sometime, we can. But anyway, here we go. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, oh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Well, the story goes on a little bit, but we're going to stop right there because we want to focus on the solution to this malaise of moralistic therapeutic deism. And we want to talk about this scripture and take a look at it and do a little study of it to see what it tells us that will help us provide solutions to the people around us and keep us focused on the solution. So the location is kind of interesting. It tells us that they were traveling Jesus and his disciples to Caesarea Philippi or that region. And that was an area that was rebuilt and renamed to honor Caesar Augustus. So the whole area had real ties to Roman allegiances. And remember, the whole point of, of faithfulness to Jesus is, will you pledge allegiance to him? Will you give your allegiance to Jesus? And here they are in an area that was dominated by allegiance to Rome. So it's theologically significant that Jesus is in this area when he challenges his disciples and asks them, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that, that I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah. So they're in an area where people would say Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is introducing and helping his disciples identify him as Lord. So Jesus is Lord, even in an area dominated by people who say Caesar is Lord. Well, kind of good for us because we live in a time that's dominated by many people who find other, uh, how should I say, rulers to follow and they would say something else is Lord. Maybe in the moralistic therapeutic deism thing, they'd say being happy is Lord. But Jesus says that he is Lord. Well, he asked them the question to try to introduce the idea, who do people say that I am? And Jesus' question was about the people around there. How do they identify him? He wasn't getting to the disciples yet. And the focus, though, was clearly on his identity. Who is he? through the eyes of the people around. 
And so they answered, well, people think you might be John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. Well, John the Baptist was a good candidate. People knew about John the Baptist. Um, and there could easily have been some confusion of identity because of the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. But sadly, we know at this point in the story that John the Baptist had been killed. That's reported in chapter six of Mark. So it was clear that Jesus wasn't John the Baptist. Some people thought that maybe he was Elijah. And if so, that would mean that it was near the end of time because they believed that Elijah would return near the end of time. And of course, they, they, I guess the people were struggling with who is Jesus really, because they said, well, he might be one of the prophets. Maybe he was a prophet come back to life. Maybe he was just like the prophets of old. That was the general idea that the disciples reported to Jesus. Well, it's clear very quickly that Jesus wasn't really as interested in that as he was, was interested in their answer. So he says to them, what say you? Who do you say that I am? Now, many people at this point credit Peter for being the great courageous spokesperson that steps up and he says, you are the Messiah. And he did that. That's in the story. I think it's important to remind us that, uh, to remind ourselves that in, in the culture of that day, they were not individualistic like we were or we are, they were collective in, their, in the way they thought and behaved. And so likely, while Peter is identified as the spokesperson, he's simply likely reflecting what they all believed, because they wouldn't make an effort to stand out. He was just simply saying what they all had come to understand, you are the Messiah. Now, it's also important that in the tradition of that day, that it's important that Jesus was identified as Messiah by his followers. It wasn't considered appropriate for someone to put themselves out there as a Messiah. That would lead some people to be suspect of, of their claim. But when followers identified it, that was a good thing. It's also, this is the first confession of Jesus as Messiah in the Gospel of Mark by a person. Now, here we are in the eighth chapter of Mark, and not a single person up to this point, until Peter says, you are the Messiah, no one has identified Jesus as a Messiah. Now, there had been a couple of previous confessions. One of them was God. When Jesus was baptized, God spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He identified Jesus as Messiah. And there were a couple of occasions where Jesus cast out demons, and they identified him as the Holy One of God, and sometimes other descriptions, but they understood he was not just a regular person. He was special. He was Messiah. But this is the first time in, in Mark chapter 8 that a person actually does this. And then, interestingly enough, while Jesus wants to know what they think, he's real quick to say, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Well, there's a lot of potential reasons for that. He didn't want the time of his crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection to be fast-forwarded inappropriately. He wanted to control the time and the unfolding of events. Uh, there may have been more things he wanted them to learn. One of the interesting things is that in the Gospel of Mark, there are three separate occasions where Jesus teaches them this next section about how he would have to suffer and die, be rejected. So he had to repeat this lesson over and over, apparently to help them get it. But if we look at verse 31 and following, Jesus began to teach the, that he would have to suffer that he would be rejected, and rejected specifically by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The people 
in other words, the people who should have known better, who should have been able to identify Messiah, would reject Jesus. And he was preparing his followers for that. And he does that in those, in those verses, starting with verse 31. He tells them not only would he suffer and be rejected, but he would be killed. And this, as I just mentioned, this is the first of three predictions of his passion. In Mark, there are three different occasions where Jesus specifically teaches his followers that he will be rejected, killed, rise again. So three passion predictions. Some people talk about this whole idea of Jesus pointing to his passion and, and at the same time saying, tell no one, as the messianic secret. Now, that's an interesting idea. And, and, and when I first heard it, I began to think, well, that was a little weird description. But I understand that it's just a description. It's just helpful for us to, to realize that Jesus was just trying to keep the lid on things until the appropriate time. It's also interesting to me that he, he not only said, suffer, be rejected, be killed, but he said that he would rise. Now, that's interesting. In fact, in, in this English translation, he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. So he's very specific there. Well, Jesus, uh, Jesus told them this, and then uh, he, he was quite open about it, and then Peter took Jesus privately and rebuked him about that. Now, it's real interesting that likely what Peter was rebuking him about was about the suffering and the death. Peter hadn't focused on the thought of rising again, and that's probably understandable. That would have been a very unusual idea, but it's very significant that Peter rebuked Jesus privately, and then Jesus turned around and rebuked Peter openly. Get behind me, Satan. Wow, that's a strong statement. That's a very strong statement. Jesus accuses Peter, and rightly so, of thinking of, of human concerns, not about the things that God is concerned about. So just after Peter makes this wonderful confession that he's the Messiah, Jesus turns around and, and rebukes Peter openly. So, so what's going on here? That, let's help ourselves a little bit. Well, Peter was right in one sense. When Peter heard Jesus talk about how he was going to be killed, Peter would have immediately recognized that how could Jesus be Messiah if he was dead? Well, so you don't talk like that because we need you to be Messiah. You just told us you are. Well, part of what Peter would have been thinking was that a Messiah was expected to lead the people out of oppression. Remember, they were, they were living under Roman occupation. And so this would have been, in, in the Jewish people of this time, that would have been one of their expectations of Messiah. They also would have expected the Messiah to be a powerful figure. So lead us out of oppression, be a powerful figure doing that, and be a savior, which probably meant to them, deliver them from the tyranny of the Romans, save them from that occupation, and rescue them. Maybe they would have thought rescue them similar to the rescue from Egypt, but clearly in the messianic expectation, they did not envision a Messiah that would suffer be rejected, be killed, and ultimately rise again. They didn't have any frame of reference for that. So we understand why 
Peter would have made his statement. We understand really why Jesus put, gave it right back to him. But there's also a little deeper understanding here, I think, that on a couple of these things, and particularly with this idea of rebuke. The idea of rebuke here in this passage is that one person is taking authority over another person, or as Jesus did in other places in Mark, a demon. Jesus rebuked demons. And so the very same idea that's going on when Jesus rebuked demons and cast them out of people is going on here by Peter rebuking Jesus and Jesus rebuking Peter. See, rebuking is what Jesus does to demons. So you want to talk about a strong statement. Those are two very strong statements when Peter rebukes Jesus and Jesus rebukes Peter. See, Peter's taking authority and saying, hey, hold on. And then Jesus takes greater authority and says, no, wait, you hold on. Hmm. Wow. But then there's a little extra part of this that, that we look at and say, now, why, why did Jesus refer to Peter as Satan? That's really strong language. We don't talk to each other like that. We wouldn't expect Jesus to. So I guess maybe another way to think about that is, why did Jesus see Peter's rebuke as a satanic threat? Well, he linked him with Satan. That's why I use that idea of satanic threat. Why did Jesus see Peter's perspective as a satanic threat? Because that really, that is a huge statement, a huge statement. Well, as I was thinking about that, it, it occurred to me that, that Jesus' mission was the cross. Jesus came to die. And we hear that over and over. So, so when we put that in that context, then Peter trying to keep Jesus from dying would have been exactly playing into Satan's hands because that would have stopped the mission of salvation. Remember, Jesus was described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he needed to be that Lamb of God. Remember, they sacrificed lambs. That was part of their ritual worship because of sin. And Jesus came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He couldn't do that if he followed Peter's advice. You see, if, if Peter thwarts the messianic mission, there is no salvation. So it's not so difficult when we think of it that way to realize that, that when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he really sees that as a threat to accomplishing God's purposes, a real threat to salvation. See, God's concern was to save the world, and that's what Jesus was about. And so when Peter does anything to get in the way of that, Jesus rebukes it immediately. Peter's concern, in all likelihood, was much more temporal. Get us out from under Roman rule. Get us out from under Roman rule. We can't stand it any longer. And God had much more than that in mind. God realized that the rule of sin was far more significant, far more dangerous, far more deadly to people than living under Roman rule. And so Jesus recognized this was a satanic threat. Now, one of the ways that, I, that has helped me think about that is, is a question that someone posed 
a while back. And it could have been David Smith in the class on Mark. I just don't remember who said it. If I did, I'd be happy to give them credit. It wasn't my idea, but they asked them an amazing question. They said, what is the worst thing that God could do to us? Well, I'd never thought about that because I've always been reminded by the church and people that talk about God, preachers, Bible teachers, that God loves people and God wants to help people. And I'd never really thought about it. So that question really hit me when it was asked. I mean, it, it, and it hasn't gone away. I have not forgotten it. What's the worst thing God could do to us? And I didn't have an answer. Now, I, I like questions. If you, if you get around me, you know, I, I love questions. And I'm, I'm probably too full of questions for my own good sometimes. I think my mother probably believed that many times. But that one really got me. What's the worst thing? And I didn't know what to say. But the answer was obvious when the questioner who challenged us on that said, the worst thing God could do for us, to us, is to leave us in our sin. And wow, I thought that's exactly right. And that's exactly why Jesus was so concerned with Peter's rebuke. Because if Jesus had followed the direction that Peter was implying, then it would have interrupted the mission of salvation, and we would have been left in our sin. Well, after that exchange, Jesus called the crowd together and explained to them that if you want to follow me, then deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Well, that is a very strong statement. Okay, the deny yourself, we, okay, live for something else. But when it gets to take up your cross, well, they all understood that taking up one's cross meant you were on your way to a miserable, horrible death. You were going to die, and that was it. And so Jesus was saying, you need to give up your wants, your wishes, your being happy, shall we say, and you need to follow me, take on the difficulties, the challenges, and all that goes with that to follow me. But he goes on, and he doesn't leave it there. He says, if you, if you gain the world or save yourself and then lose your life, what benefit do you have? Well, that's a very good question, Jesus. If you gain the world and save yourself, then lose your life, what benefit do you have? Well, none, because you're lost in the end. And Jesus goes on, if, if you lose your life for Jesus, or he might say, if you lose your life for me, you save it. Now, as I was looking at that, I thought, this is really remarkable. I remember geometry class in high school. I don't remember a lot about geometry class. My biggest remembrance now is I wish I remembered more. Uh, and, and now sometimes I think I wish I could take geometry all over again, because since I've had a little bit more seasoned perspective, I think I understand its benefits. But what I do remember from geometry was the if-then question. If this is so, then this is so. And that's what Jesus ends up here in this teaching that he gives his disciples after they've made the direct declaration that you're the Messiah. He says, if you want to follow me, then here's what you do. You deny yourself, you take up your cross and follow me. That's what you do. If then. He goes on to say, if you gain the world, or said another way, if you save yourself, then 
lose your life, what benefit is it? If then, if you gain the world or save yourself, then lose your life, what benefit is it? Isn't the idea to have life? And then he says it a little different way. If you lose your life for Jesus, you save it. And he ends with a rhetorical question, what can anyone give in exchange for your life? What can we give in exchange for, for life? And I couldn't help thinking this is exactly the answer to the challenge and confusion and the don't worry, be happy attitude of our age. We need to call each other to stretch to following Jesus because he gives us something to live for, something to die for. And he shows us the way that we need to make the declaration with Peter that you're the Messiah, and we need to follow him, and we need to stretch toward God's high calling of following Jesus. That's exactly the solution to our times. Now, people will frame this in all kinds of different ways, but foundationally, the answer to the world's problems is found in the person of Jesus, and the Bible tells us the story of Jesus. So if you want to live a life beyond being happy, if you want to live a life beyond moralistic therapeutic deism, the answer is found in following someone whose life mattered far more than anything else, who led us in the way we should go, who called us to follow him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to lose our lives so that we can save it, because that is the way, the truth, and the life, and that's found in following Jesus. That's the solution to our age. The question is, who's going to step up and stretch toward God's high calling? Who's going to say, I have faith, I have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm going to follow Jesus because he is the one who died and rose again and lives forever. And yes, we all say amen. And yes, we're going to do that. And yes, we'll do it again next week. I'll see you then.